We come to our sermon text this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Continuing on in our series from Hebrews, A Better Future. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I feel like the pastor who needs to say that again. Good morning. There we go. (laughs) Uh, I need to begin with just to update you. So I just heard literally a moment or so ago, that someone that I've been in close contact with has tested positive for COVID. And so we're all scrambling to figure out what that means. Uh, And believe me, I know there are many different opinions on what that means. And, you know, not many things make me feel suicidal, but if I get 50 emails about wearing masks or not wearing masks, you know, I mean, I'd rather have a root canal, let's put it that way. So, yeah, I know there are different opinions, but the, the truth is we're just trying to make sure that um, we do what's right. So according to the latest uh, instructions, uh, I don't need a quarantine. Uh, I should wear a mask in public until I've had a negative COVID test. So that's what we're doing. So I'm going to preach in a mask. All right. And you'll have to look at the twinkle in my eye. All right. And uh, if anyone feels uncomfortable with the fact that I've been in close contact with someone who tested positive with COVID and you're in the same room as me, I'm going to pray. And if you want to just make your way out and watch online, that's fine. There'll be no judgment. And, uh, but I'll pray to begin with. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we come to it now, we pray that you would be powerfully at work. Please use me for your glory so that we might be thrilled by uh, who you are and called by your word uh, to follow you. And we ask this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. So, friends, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and we come to verses 12 to 17. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence, and it is as follows. This passage is teaching us how to race ahead spiritually, The image of a race or run is um, continuing. How to race ahead spiritually and how not to. So in this passage, there's both practical encouragement, uh, but also warning how to race ahead spiritually and how not to. 
And at the end of the passage, there's a remarkable illustration that the author of Hebrews uses that really turns on its head the expectations of the original author, uh, of the original audience um, that the author uses as he teaches uh, this uh, message, how to race ahead spiritually and how not to. We don't, now there's a warning in this passage, and we often don't like to receive warnings unless we really need them. And uh, here is a warning that we all really need to heed. And one of the advantages of being in a church that teaches the Bible is that there are parts of the Bible that we wouldn't instinctively pick to focus on, but we still need. And so this passage, I say, is teaching us how to raise our head spiritually and also warning us how not to with a remarkable illustration at the end. Now, why is this important? A number of different reasons. I suppose, first of all, because we live in a time when there are some people who are not moving ahead with Jesus, but instead leaving Jesus behind. They are progressing from Christianity to something else. In fact, uh, there's even a movement of ex-evangelicals, people who grew up within the Christian church, and for one reason or another, have felt disenfranchised or find it hard to believe or have been hurt or something, and so are now characterize themselves as no longer truly following biblical Christianity. In fact, uh, one Christian leader that I know personally, don't know, former Christian leader, I don't know him very well, but I've been in the same room as him, and I won't mention his name, uh, for there are, there are others, and this is just one instance, is someone who, though for a while was very well known as a Christian leader, for a number of different reasons, decided that he no longer characterizes himself as a Christian. So we live at a time where there are prominent former Christian leaders who are saying, I, I've moved on. So obviously it's important that we look at this text which is calling us to race ahead with Jesus spiritually, how to do that and how, how not to as, as well. There's a warning for those who don't keep on with Jesus, and we need to heed that warning and take it seriously. But also, when there, are, when there is an exhortation like this, part of what can happen in Christian circles is that we receive an exhortation but we're not given any practical instructions how to do it. This is a very practical passage. It's important that we do have practical how-tos. How are you going to race ahead spiritually? What does that really mean? What do I actually need to do? Because if we, don't, if we only receive an exhortation, be holy, keep on going with Jesus, uh, don't do this, don't do that, do do the other, but without any how-to, it can obviously become a burden, uh, rather than a helpful uh, series of instructions. And this passage is, is very practical, and so it will help with that dynamic too. So you don't just feel like someone's telling you to do something, but not equipping you. It's an equipping message. How are we going to do this? And uh, the passage will teach us that, and obviously that is important as well. 
But lastly, I suppose the last way that I would think, and there are many others why this is important, but the last one is that in general terms, as we thought last week, this uh, passage in the Bible is set within an overall narrative, an overall story, what he's, he's telling the story of how the future is with those who follow Jesus. And we live in a time where people are saying Christianity is the past, but this passage is teaching us, no, the future is with those who follow Jesus. So chapter 11, verse 40, he says, since God had provided something better, so we're talking about a better future, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect, talking about the, the followers of God in the Old Testament, so there's something better, and it's a better future. So chapter 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It's a better future. And so Christianity is not a faith of yesterday, only of the past, it's a faith of the future. We are moving ahead to the city that is to come. We Christians are people, not just of the past, which is death and resurrection, but also the future. The future belongs to those who follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. So there's lots of reasons why this is important. Well, let's look at it together and see how the author of Hebrews gives us these practical instructions. First of all, he uh, is working with this image of a race, of running. So verses 12 and 13, look what he says. Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it's there for. Therefore, building upon what he said that we looked at last week, this, this personal development that he's calling them to, the paideia that we looked at last week, this development, spiritual development that is the framework. Therefore, here are the practical instructions. So he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. Imagine you've been on a long race, you're running a marathon, or maybe an ultramarathon, and your, your hands feel like they're lead balloons. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Whenever I go for a race or a run, I don't do a race anymore, but I still run sometimes, Whenever I go for a run, I feel like my knees are hurting. You may be at the same stage of life, I don't know. Strengthen your weak knees as you're racing, as you're running ahead. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So not only are we to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees, but make straight paths for your feet so that you're not going to stumble or fall over. You're going to pick the right path, the straight path, so that what is lame, that, that weak knee or that hip that feels like it's out of place, may not be put completely out of joint, but rather be healed. Maybe you're feeling like in this Christian race that you're tired. You've got drooping hands. Maybe you're feeling like in this Christian race uh, your knees are really hurting. You've been pounding that path on the prairie path for a long time, and it's really hurting. Uh, maybe you feel like um, you need to be healed to keep going. And what he's saying is, now I'm going to give you practical instructions 
of how to race ahead, to have strong knees and lift your hands and to not be, have the joints out of joint, but instead be healed. Okay, well, that's, that's good. So how are we going to do that? As again, how to race ahead spiritually and how not to. And he gives us, by my count, six specific instructions that are both, you know, first of all, practical encouragements and then some warnings with this amazing illustration at the end. And obviously, we're not going to go into each of them in great detail because there are six, but each of them are positioned in such a way not only to tell us to do something, but also they're very carefully phrased to show us how to do it. So let's look at them. There are six, beginning at verse 14. First of all, this is how to race ahead spiritually and how not to. With an illustration at the end, the first of the six, verse 14, beginning of, strive for peace with everyone. What a word in season for the Christian church today. Strive for peace. That is not the hallmark of the Christian church today. We are not primarily those striving for peace with everyone. But according to the author of Hebrews, if we are to race ahead spiritually, we need to become the kind of people who are striving for peace. So let's put out of our minds once for all, that any desire for peace is a wimpy, unmanly desire. Not true. We as Christians, and Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he? Blessed are the peacemakers. We as Christians are to strive for peace. That doesn't mean that we should compromise the truth, and it is certainly the case, that the very center of the gospel has its own offense. The cross is offensive. The cross is saying to all of us, you cannot save yourself, only God can save you. That is a deep offense to the human, the pride of the human heart. There is an offense in the cross. Paul calls it a stumbling block. Yes, we must not compromise the truth. The gospel itself has its own offense. But that is not to excuse Christians being deliberately offensive or tactless or arrogant or always looking for a fight. We Christians, of any people on the face of the planet, are to strive for peace with everyone. Look. The natural state of all human communities is what? Conflict. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the natural state of all human, human communities is conflict. What happens after Genesis chapter 3? Cain and Abel. Murder. Conflict. 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 That's easy. You don't have to work to create conflict in a community. You just have to let it happen. But peace, that takes work. 
The Apostle Paul says uh, to the Ephesians that we are to make every effort, he tells the Ephesians, that you are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's effort. It's work. You've got to strive at it. And if you're not racing ahead spiritually, it could be because you're in endemic conflict. It's going to give you weak knees and tired hands. And your path will not be straight. You'll be in conflict. What, what, how, can, how then can we strive for peace with everyone? Well, pastorally, let me just give you a couple of helpful things that I found helpful over the years. First of all is to do what you can to understand. Most people are in conflict when they do not really understand where the other person is coming from. We tend to assume what the other person is thinking rather than seek to understand it. So, when you're in conflict with someone, try saying something like this. What I think you are saying is this. Is that right? By speaking that way, you are indicating to the other person that you're doing your best to understand them. You're putting out there what you think they're saying, and then you're giving them the opportunity to correct it. So they come back and say, well, no, that's not what I mean. What I mean is this. You say, oh, okay, so what I hear you saying is this. Is that right? And they go, yes, that is what I mean. Okay, now we're communicating. So in your marriage with your children, with your grandchildren, with your friends around the Thanksgiving table, when there's a moment of conflict, say, what, what I think you mean is this. Is that right? And they say, yeah, that is what I mean. Oh, okay. I, I. Well, at least now we understand each other. So one way to strive for peace for everyone is to seek un understanding. Uh, another way is praying. A number of times I found that Christians who are in conflict when I can encourage them to pray for each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ of one heavenly Father. And when you start praying for someone that you have a conflict with, you begin to have a heart for that person. You begin to care for that person. Praying. Understanding praying, but also theologizing. The theology of it? Why are we to strive for peace for everyone? Because God, through Christ, has brought us to peace with Him, and therefore we have peace with one another. It is a foundational expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ that His people strive to live at peace with each other. The college church, let's be that kind of church. That's the first way to race ahead spiritually. Strive for peace with everyone. And then he says, second one, second half of verse 14, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, again, what a, what a word in season. Um, I'm, um, the next book I'm writing is on holiness. I've written it. It's in the publisher. It's coming out in the spring of next year. And it's, it's a reworking of some sermons that I've preached here. And in writing that book on holiness, what 
struck me is how rare it is that in the Christian church today we hear a call for holiness. And of course the reason for that is we don't want to be legalistic, we don't want to be judgmental, we want to be accepting, we want to be a place that is welcoming, and all that is, is good. And you certainly can teach holiness in a way that is unbiblical, not gospel-centered. But a sign of a real Christian is a striving for holiness. None of us have attained perfect sanctification. We're not in heaven yet. But a real Christian is a person who wants to be holy and is working to be holy and striving for it. It's a sign of actually being a Christian. If you're going to race ahead spiritually, you need to strive for holiness. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus came to save us from our sins. And the one who's been saved from their sins no longer wants to live in sin. They want to become more like Jesus. There's a striving for holiness that is the hallmark of a real, uh, of a real, uh, a real Christian. We say, well, how, how do I strive for holiness? Well, Again, pastorally, let me give you a couple of thoughts. The first would be observe holy people. By God's grace and His kindness, there are in this church a number of very holy people. Watch them. Get to know them. When you get to know a holy person, you are disabused of the idea, that you, you, you no longer think that it's true that holiness means being boring, being weird, being judgmental. You meet a holy person and there's a sweetness to it. And you think, I want to be like that. Observe holy people. Perhaps you think, I don't know any holy people around me, and, or I haven't got to know them. Well, if, if that's the case, which I doubt, but if that is the case, then read about holy people from the past. For instance, George Muller, the holy man of God from Bristol who set up an orphanage. I'm sure George Muller was not perfect, but he was a holy person. And when you read about him, you think, whatever it is that he has... I want some of that. Or Billy Graham. I didn't know Billy Graham at all well. I only met him once, but the one time I met him, I was struck by his humility. You think, well, that's amazing. I want some of that. So observe holy people. But most of all, observe Jesus. When we're saying, Striving for holiness, what we're really saying is striving to become more like Jesus. And when you observe Jesus, you read one of the Gospels, you know, perhaps the best takeaway for you from this sermon, to go back and think over Thanksgiving break, I'm going to read through Mark's Gospel and I'm going to observe Jesus and see what he's like. 
And as you observe Jesus, you think, this is just the most amazing, beautiful person. And to think that by His grace, I could be a little bit like that. That will give you the motivation to strive for wholeness. So we're looking at these practical instructions, how to race ahead spiritually, and then, as we'll see, there's some warnings how not to. First, first, strive for peace for everyone, and then for the wholeness, without which no one will see the Lord. What he's, what he's saying there is that spiritual insightfulness, so seeing the Lord, vision, the sight of Jesus and of the Lord, spiritual insightfulness is inextricably connected to moral righteousness. So it's an instruction, but also a warning. Because those who have been saved from sin will, because of the work of the Spirit, strive increasingly to get rid of sin as a hallmark of what it really means to be a regenerate Christian, to race ahead, to strive for holiness. So that's the, the second instruction. Here's, here's the third, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What an interesting phrase. We tend to think, don't we, in Christian circles, that grace is the, is the kind of thing that is easy. That, that's the, um, well, I may not understand everything, but I've got Grace. But here, the author tells us to see to it, so within the Christian communities, you scan around each other in your small groups, in your adult Sunday school, in your Christian ministries, in, among your Christian friends, you see to it, you look out, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Grace is something that must be obtained. The, the image in the Word is of, of making sure that you don't fall short of grace, that you actually get to it, that you don't miss out on it, that you obtain it, that you get there in the race, you make it to grace. Why would that be the case? Why would it be the case that we need to be active as a church, as we look out at each other, to see to it that we obtain grace? Here's why. Because the hardest thing in the world to believe is that you and I are accepted by God, irrespective of what we've done, regardless of what we said. That is Bar the power of the Spirit, that is impossible to believe. But such is the message of the gospel. Sometimes uh, people ask me uh, how, uh, what would be my advice for bringing up children. And one of the things I often say is, well, obviously Rochelle and I have our own approach, but ask us in 20 years to see whether it was the right one or not. And so, with that, you know, genuine 
like we're doing our best, but who knows kind of thing. We, I do have, we do have a couple of principles that reflect this desire to obtain the grace of God. The one is that I say that our family runs on grace. Obviously, we have rules and all, all the rest. But what I want to cultivate in our family and in the church family is grace. Not cheap grace. Grace needs to transform. We've seen that. You need to strive for wholeness. But nonetheless, grace that, and, that this is a place, that our family is a place where we're a part of it. That we're wanted. And we need to work hard as a church to make sure that, you know, that person you haven't seen at small group for a while, that person you haven't seen at church a little bit, that they don't think that they're not wanted, they're not accepted, they're not good enough. No. See to it that no one fails to obtain grace. The other principle we have, uh, as, as I have as a father with my family, is that part of my role is to persuade my children that I love them. One of the observations I make is that children who tend to grow up to be secure and stable and productive in their lives are individuals who have not only been loved by their parents, but believe that they have been loved. It's really hard to believe that anyone loves us. Really. And so we need to seek to it, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that God accepts us by His grace, that He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, that God loves you as you are. And we need to see to it, persuade each other. You're loved. You're wanted. You're needed around here. So that we obtain grace. And then he says, and uh, this is the next of these um, particular instructions, the fourth, and it's really the reverse. So if you don't receive grace, this is what happens. Then he says, see to it, that no, second half of verse 15, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So if we're not a community where there's a predominance of grace, what will tend to happen is there'll be bitterness. So you'll think, well, that person wronged me. That person did me harm. That was not the right thing to have happened to me. And then unless we're a community whereby we live by grace, now that doesn't mean that there isn't room for justice and and when you forgive someone, you're not saying that what they did was right. What you're saying is what they did was wrong. Otherwise, they wouldn't need forgiveness. But if you have grace, then you don't allow bitterness to be nurtured in your mind, in your heart. You, you, don't, you don't take that wrong and you, where, where no one can see, you nurture the grievance. They did me harm. That was unfair. I hope one day they'll get what they deserve. 
and you nurture the bitterness. And you think, well, no one can see it. It's like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, my precious bitterness. What happens, of course, is if you nurture that bitterness, it then affects your character that then shapes how you interrelate with other people and it damages and indeed can defile other people with, a, with bitterness and jealousy and revenge and discouragement. And, all, and, and the, of course, the answer to the, all that, the, the answer to the bitterness of unforgiveness is to obtain the grace of God. So the way to race ahead spiritually is to see to that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, nor by reverse, and contrast that, that there's bitterness being like, okay so that was wrong but 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 we're all but but God still can use that and that you are still wanted and you still have a place don't nurture that bitterness forgive which doesn't mean that what that person did was okay there may need to be justice for it or, but you're not living in bitterness you're living in the grace of God college church let's be that kind of place we're in our small groups, adult communities, as we discover Jesus, as we grow in our faith, and all this is about racing ahead spiritually, as we grow in our faith for this better future, that then we have an impact on the world that isn't bitter, but has the sweetness of grace. Let's be more and more like that. And then the final two practical instructions he has here in verse 16. As I say, there's, a, there's an illustration which is really quite remarkable at the end. So he says, verse 16, see to it. Again, it's falling on this uh, uh, look around and make sure it doesn't happen. See to it, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral. Now, again, this is one of the reasons why it's good to be in a church where we teach the Bible because preaching against sexual immorality is not the kind of thing that typically preachers wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I get to do that. It's a sensitive topic, and yet here it is in the text. So my task is to teach on it. By sexual immorality here, the author is warning against physical, unrepentant, habitual, sexual intimacy outside the bounds of the biblical definition of marriage. And the Bible frequently warns of the danger of sexual morality. One arresting image from the Old Testament is if you think, if you, think you can get away without, with sexual morality not doing you damage, it's, sexual morality is like taking fire and scooping it into your lap. It's going to do damage. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. How? How do you keep your way? How do you flee from sexual morality? Well, the Bible's pretty clear on this. First of all, it's to do with the Bible. So the Bible says, and knowing God's word, and reading God's word, and listening to God's word, and memorizing God's word. So the Bible says, the question is, how can a young man keep his way pure? Answer. I have hidden your word in my heart. So to, if you're saying, how do I flee sexual morality? The first way is to get into this and read this and listen to preaching about this and be present 
in the church physically when there is preaching of God's word so that you can not switch channels when you've got bored but you're, or you don't like that they're talking about sexual morality. It's like, okay, I'm going to tune that out. But you're present to hear what God has to say to you. And you take it in. You hide God's word in your heart. The second way is through effective, good marriages. And uh, the Bible is very clear on this. Paul talks on this in, uh, teaches on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And the teaching is reflected in the Anglican prayer book service for marriage. And as many of you know, I grew up in the Church of England. So these words are like embedded in my brain from having been to many uh, services growing up where they were used. Paul says, and it reflects Paul's teaching, Paul says, because there is so much sexual immorality... Every man should have his own wife, and every woman should have her own husband. Uh, and and in, the, in the Anglican prayer book, Service for Marriage, it, it, it says that marriage is given, it gives different reasons for why God gives us marriage as a remedy for loneliness, for the, uh, for the procreation of children, and then nurture and training in righteousness and all that. But part of the reason why the Anglican prayer book says that marriage is given, reflecting Paul's teaching, is marriage is given as a remedy for sexual immorality. So don't like excerpt this bit of the sermon and put it on a blog and let it go viral. All I'm doing is reflecting Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 and as it's reflected in the Anglican prayer book that the way to flee sexual immorality is to have a, a marriage where not in some weird and, and controlling way, but in, in godliness and peace and joy, there is a sexual intimacy that is God's gift and is a remedy against sexual immorality. But then, of course, not everyone is married. Some people cannot be physically, sexually intimate. Some of us are single, Singleness is not easy. Obviously, I'm married, but I was single throughout my 20s, and being single is not easy. There are great opportunities for being single. Uh, whenever I go to a conference and I'm away from my family, I remember what it's like when you had all that time. It's amazing. But there are challenges too. And if you're single or you cannot be physically, sexually intimate, what then do you do? And of course, you know, typically people say, be disciplined and, and, and all that, and, but... but Biblically, I think, the key is to grasp the real meaning of sex and marriage. Even the best marriage is only a pale reflection of what marriage actually is. church is the bride of Christ and heaven is a marriage and so if you're a follower of Jesus but you're single or you cannot be physically sexually intimate if you're a follower of Jesus you are not missing out you will experience the real thing 
But if you're physically, sexually intimate and you're not following Jesus, you'll miss out on the real thing. Well, the final uh, instruction how not to, which is a warning, is see to it that no one is unholy. Now, that word for unholy means uh, profane. We don't tend to use that word these days, why it's translated unholy. It means verging on the irreverent. It means crossing the line to a place that you should not be because you do not deserve to be there. It means trivializing the truth. It's the kind of person who uh, grew up in a Christian home like Esau. We'll see this amazing in a, in a godly home like Esau. We'll see this amazing illustration at the end in just a moment. The kind of person who grew up in a Christian home or was very familiar with Christian things and they say, yeah, I believe in Christianity, but I don't really need it right now. It's not that big a deal for me. You know, I like to live my life my own way. Yeah, God exists. I think Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Uh, God will forgive me. That's, that's his job. It's trivializing. Treating is unimportant. And here there is a serious warning. He says, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And this is the most extraordinary illustration because, for the original readers, because Esau and the Edomites from which Esau came were the enemies of God's people. And, what, and they were um, those who actually helped the Babylonians take the Israelites into exile, or at least cheered them on, according to Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, they helped. And so now the, the author of Hebrews is he's calling these Hebrew Christians not to go back to Judaism. What he's saying is, if you go back to Judaism and reject Christ, you actually, you're not Jacob, who of course is the, the patriarch from which the, the tribes of Israel come, Israel, as he became known. You're not Israel, you're not Jacob, who are you? You're Esau? Because the real fulfillment of the whole Old Testament lands in Christ, and to reject him is not to be Jacob, it's to be Esau. And it's a warning not to trivialize Christ. The whole, you could summarize the whole message of Hebrews like this. Jesus is God's last. Jesus is God's final word. And therefore, he's your last chance. And if you reject him, even if you weep and cry, there's no other way to be saved. I know it's a, it's a warning, but there are times when it is important to warn. Stephen uh, Bolton, 34-year-old British man in the Maldives, in 2004 was celebrating his birthday on December the 26th when unknown to him there was a massive earthquake in the Indian Ocean 
that then created a huge tsunami that killed countless people throughout the Indian subcontinent. He and his family survived because he saw the warning. What he did, he was on the beach, he and his four children and wife, he grabbed them all, pushed them up what he thought was a very stable, strong tree, and he literally tied them to the branches of that tree with the beach towels. And when the tsunami came in, they were attached to the tree. And when he said it was like a, a plug had been pulled, and the water rushed out, bringing with it sunbeds and cars and bungalows, small houses, the tree, deep-rooted, stood firm. And they, tied to that tree with beach towels, survived. Well, there is a tree. And the author of Hebrews is saying, tie yourself to that. And ultimately, that's how to continue to make progress in your Christian life as well. How to raise a head spiritually, and then a warning how not to. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do thank you for this uh, word from the author of Hebrews, and we pray that we would uh, race ahead spiritually, and that we would heed uh, these warnings, but also put into practice these practical, these, these real-life instructions too. And as we come uh, towards Thanksgiving, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and peace and joy as we relate with many people to be good witnesses for you as we race ahead spiritually. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.